0: Market. This is Modley Full Money.
1: Welcome to Modley Full Money, the podcast that, like the postman, always rings twice. There's no reason for that one. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Doctor Anirvan Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you?
2: Great. I'm great. Well, this is the second time I'm saying good day to you. So
1: that's all right. Mate, that's just, you're the you're a polite kind of guy. It's just think it, I'm very it? polite. It is the second time you said it because this. Well, you listen to this. Hopefully, if all goes to plan, on the fifteenth of November. But we recorded it back last week, back in the Wayback Machine. Because I am right now. Well, it's probably middle of the night somewhere. I'm in America, doing our uh, a joint at a company meeting called Foolapalooza, where I'm hobnobbing and you know having a, a beer and having some fun and learning a few things about our company and hopefully sharing some of our Australian success with our US and international colleagues. But we didn't. We wouldn't ever. Leave our listeners without something, Doc, would we? No, we'd not do that. I thought we were going back in the time machine to do this. Back in the time. Well, we're kind of forward in the time. I suppose both, I suppose.
2: To time machine,
1: going back. Well, yeah, I suppose. But then we recorded it today, so we're actually going forward. That's true. Should we get on with it? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) we got an absolute... We're chockers with Mailbag, mate. There is so much mail. Um, We are super excited. So first, I'm going to start with all of the usual socials. If you're listening to this and you have a question or a comment or some feedback a suggestion... Please hit us up. Let's go through them. Info at fool.com.au is our email address. Hit us up there if you want to talk to us on email. If you're on the socials, and hopefully you are, so let's go through them. Twitter, the Motley Fool AU is our corporate Twitter handle. I'm at TMF Scott P and Doc is at, at Anirban Mahanti. That's Twitter. On Facebook, you hit us up at the Motley Fool Australia or I'm at Scott Phillips Money or on Insta if you're a fan of the. Good old Insta, if you love your food photos and your finspirational or Fit inspiration, whatever it's Fitspo, isn't it? I'm going to charge. I'm going to start Finspo, mate. So Fitzbo is supposed to be fitness inspiration. I'm going to go with Finspo, financial inspiration. That sounds like a great idea. So you going to be an influencer?
2: Um, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I, I have no. not sure. I have no idea what Instagram. I don't do Instagram. I don't do out. Facebook. You're missing out. Yeah, I stay out of. It's any, all about the gram. Yeah. It's All about the I, gram. I stay out of the Zuckerberg enterprises. <laughs> all
1: right. So hit us up on Instagram at the Motley Fool, AU or at TMF Scott P. Uh, we try and get to every question we get. Sometimes I guess maybe there's a point in the future when we'll have too many to answer. But that's why we've got a pretty good record, man. I think we're 100. Let's See how we go. But let's start off with the question from Billy. This is, hi guys, love your podcast. Good man, Billy. I'm a late comer to share investing starting at the ripe old age of 42. Mate, I can do without that, just quietly, Billy. Um, if that's the ripe old age, I'm in trouble. Spent too much time having fun working abroad and not saving money. Fair enough. My question is, I read Carnegie Clean Energy, CCE, came off a trading halt. This was, he today, but this was a while ago. And the shares are trading at $0.001. That's one-tenth. 1%. Firstly, how low can a share price fall before it's too before it's too close to worthless? Two, was it stupid of me to have bought five hundred bucks worth at that price without knowing anything about the company? Just because I can't think, I think it can't go any lower. Good question. Thanks again, and of course, fool on Billy, Billy. Very good questions, Doc. I'm going to throw this one to you, mate. <laughs> a tenth of 1%, one percent, zero point zero zero one dollars, five hundred bucks worth. Because
2: hey, it can't go any lower, can it? Billy Mitt, first of all, um, I'm going to congratulate him for starting to invest, good which man. is always a good thing. Well done, Billy. Um, so well done. Number two is for having the courage to actually write the question and, you know, like saying that, well, how low can it go and being very upfront with the right, question, right. which is really great uh, because if you ask the right questions, that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. Um now, here's the unfortunate part. How low can the share price go? It can go as low as zero. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, if a company basically becomes worthless, it can actually go to zero, which means it stops trading and it's pretty much worthless at that point. At one-tenth of a cent, it is very much a penny stock or a less than a penny or less than a mm. cent stock. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, is it a good decision to buy? Yeah, I mean, you could buy for 500 if you think it's going to, $500 if you think it's, at that point, it becomes a punt mm. in the sense that it a company that's trading at that stock price typically is, is trading at that stock price because people are really worried about its future. Right. Um, can it turn itself around? Maybe it can. I have to, you know, have looked at the company to know whether or not it can turn it around. If it turns mm. it around, you, mm. you could make some money off it, but... That's really a punt, not really an investment at that stage. So, yeah, that's my two cents. Yeah,
1: I think that's a good point. Like, I don't know the company really, that, um, Billy, so I'll, I'll add a couple of things. First is that companies that are that cheap, I also run the risk of actually being delisted simply because the share price of the market cap is too low. And so what you don't want to end up with is company that gets delisted by the ASX. You'll still own those shares, but you may find it very, very difficult to find it possible to find someone to buy them from you. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I think, you know, 0.001, effectively what you do is buy yourself a lottery ticket, right? And that's kind of okay as long as you see it that way. Um, now spending 500 bucks on a lottery is probably not a great idea, so I don't know that you want necessarily do that either. Um, but at some level, you know I mean guess do how much lower can go or can, everything can go to zero right? whether the shares are 30 bucks or three cents if they go to zero, you lose 100 percent of your money no matter what price you paid. and that's really, really important. It's kind of a bit counterintuitive, but it's relevant here. Um, was it stupid of you to board it? look I, I don't think I don't think you could, I don't think you can say you're investing at that point as Doc said, it's pure speculation and kind of closer to gambling than investing. if if that's your thing, go for it. Um, The reality is most of these companies that are in that range probably won't do particularly well uh, over extended periods of time. So that's why i meant lost Lush Tickets, right? It's kind of a very, very, very low chance of making a decent amount of money. And if that works great, uh, very, very decent chance that it won't do any good, unfortunately.
0: Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Next question is from Philip, mate. Philip says, "Hello, gents. Love the podcast. Thank you, Philip." Do you he just said it because he likes us, or?
2: I oh, know. I think he genuinely means it.
0: You think? You yeah, I just want
2: to get so. the
1: question on the podcast.
2: No. Okay. People right. don't say these things. Um, we never ask them.
1: You'd be surprised. Yeah. Uh, he says, oh, I just love the podcast. My wife is pregnant with our first child. Congratulations, Philip, and your lovely wife. I hope you uh, the pregnancy goes well, and I hope you're looking forward to a healthy baby boy or girl. Um, if you do end up having a boy, I think Scott is a wonderful name, so feel free to think about that. Or an ear barn is also fine. i uh, not as good as Scott, but you know, I, th- I think calling your son Scott is probably a good idea. That's not what you're writing about, though. You won't ask for baby names. He says, uh, I want to set up an investment that we and our families can periodically add to during their life. Two questions. What investment or group of investments would you choose for a term of about 20 years? The other question, what is the normal way of structuring this investment? I was planning on doing it just in the wife's name as trustee for. He has a dash there because obviously they don't have a a name for their child yet. Let me know your thoughts. All right, Doc, in order. 20 years, what investment or group of investments should Philip and his wife and their family choose for their pending little one?
2: Well, I mean, if you're going to be investing with a long-time horizon and you want to not be actively looking at um, what those companies are then your natural choice really would be to invest in what i would call an exchange traded funds or etfs Um, lots of options there but you know you could invest you could partially invest you could you could invest in um, uh, put some of the funds in an ETF that follows the Australian market, put the rest in an ETF that follows everything ex-Australia. That's one option. You could follow, you could invest some in Australia and then invest some, say, in the NASDAQ ETF, which basically gives you exposure to the biggest tech companies of the world. Um, something like that is is a passive instrument, uh, which is really useful because you could periodically add money to it, not worry about individual company-specific issues, and just ride the... The tailwind of good things over mm. time. Yeah. Um, with respect to structure, I mean, I don't know. I mean, a couple of different options. We have a family trust, and that is one way in which you can invest for the entire family. Uh, trusts don't die, people die, or trust lives longer than people. <laughs> so, so as long as you have a will and um, Uh, I guess uh, process in place for managing the trust, then I think that's a pretty handy way of doing it. Mm. Um, Otherwise, I mean, you know um, what you suggest, you know, wife's name as trustee for the the child is, 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 is pretty perfect. Um, I guess you have to think about how the income is. If, if you buy, so if you, I mean, if you buy stocks that don't pay much income, then you're fine. Otherwise you have to think about uh, income being apportioned to someone. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think those are, again, talk to an accountant. An accountant, it's really, I mean, this is, this is really important. And I think it's under, um, under-realized in some sense. But it is really useful to talk to an accountant and to have the structures done and do things done in the right way. Because it saves a lot of headache later on down the path, and and I agree it costs a little bit of money to get these things done. But you know, you you're better off doing things the right way than to have you know trying to fix things later on. And and and, uh, and on on occasions from the right person, you can get the right advice, which is I think really useful. So I mean, again, none of this that I said is personal advice. You, you know, the, the, <laughs> your a financial advisor or an accountant will be able to give you more mm. specific advice yep. uh, in considering your context. And and I think that's that's very much worth it. I at least have found it in our case to be very much worth it.
1: Yeah, great great points. Uh, I, I can only echo... Uh, so, Phil, so I guess it depends on what you want to do with your investing. So, if you're looking for an investment you can make now and not have to worry about for 20 years, and Doc's point about an ETF is probably the only reasonable way to go or some sort of long-dated listed investment company. The reality is that if you don't want to have to watch the stocks regularly, and you can, by the way, so there's a whole different way you can do this, but if you want to sort of have something you can buy now, add to regularly an ETF is almost your only option. I mean, there's every chance that maybe an Apple or maybe a, I don't know, a Woolies or maybe a BHP are around in 20 years' time and maybe they're bigger and better than they are today. But at some point, you may have to decide you want to sell or you need to sell because value or price or something is you know, no longer attractive enough. Um, so at some point, you know either a selection of blue chips you don't have to worry too much about or an ETF. If you want to be more active with your investing, then I guess you can buy some kind of, you know, uh, more active positions, then tr- change them semi-regularly as as you feel a need to. Um, that may well be beyond what you're looking to do or what you're trying to do or how you want the rest of the family to contribute. So for most people, I think, if you've got 20 years, I mean, mate, they, they reckon it, you know, market averages stock will double every seven years from that point. So you've pretty much got a, you know, a double and a double and a double again um, over, so that's an eightfold increase on whatever dollars you put down today and then over time. So I think that's, an ETF probably almost certainly the best option for you unless you want to be active and, and engaged in that. To Doc's point, if you want to think about ETFs, um, now I'll say ETFs, I also include listed investment companies and just for absolute transparency, for the sake of advice, uh, although we can't give personal advice. Um, my sister had the same question for me not all that long ago and we end up putting half the money into Solpats, um, the listed investment company in Australia, and half the money into a NASDAQ ETF, which is again another one Doc recommended. Something like that is a, is a, is a perfectly good idea. Um, the other problem with the Australian ETF is it's really super heavy in finance companies and banks and I just think that's a really tough you buy ETF for diversification, right, and for market returns. Um, if you if you're getting 30% banks and 20% resources companies, it's hard to hard to see that as diversification. So we went Solpats as a um, as a proxy for that because it wasn't you know it was, a, it was an Australian based company with Australian based earnings. It is itself internally ma- actively managed, but as a, as an instrument, you don't need to buy a solid regularly. So that's that's probably one option you want to think about. There's nothing nothing wrong with an Australian ETF if you want to. I just I'm not very comfortable with the. Concentration, we talked about the banks last week. That's something I'd be a little bit careful of. Um, In terms of structure, some thoughts. Doc again has nailed it, but um, again, please do see an accountant. But from what I've been told from my accountant on a different context, but the same question was you need to make sure three things are the same. It needs to be clearly in the child's name, as trustee for is fine, as long as it's clearly that way. The dividends have to be when they're received, going to the child's benefit, and the child's tax file number has to be on the account. Those three things are Your best way to ensure the ATO treats the assets and the investments as your child's um, it's a really. Cr- like, this is a really really suboptimal problem for parents, right? And it was done because people before us. You know, someone always screws it up for everybody else. In this case, what was happening was people were pretending that assets were in their ch- children's names, uh, and therefore taking advantage of a, of the tax uh, tax free. A threshold for everybody in the family. So if I had if I had six kids, I could have them all with a twenty thousand dollars tax free threshold, and I you know I could make one hundred twenty grand in, in dividends before I paid a single cent in profit. And the ATO went well, hang on, that's a bit that's a bit crappy. You can't do that anymore, which is fair, and I get why they did it. and People screwed up for everybody else, uh, but now we're stuck with a suboptimal solution. You will be you will be taxed highly for dividends above. I think it's. Six hundred bucks out of a year, doc. I think from yeah. There's a limit to it. Yeah. Um, now that's going to be okay for a little while. Towards the end of that period, frankly, it, it may hurt depending on how well you do and what whether your companies pay dividends or not and how big they are. So be a little bit mindful of that. Um, mate. More importantly, look. Even if you got even if you have got subpar returns, which I don't think you will. But even if you did, starting now, adding regularly for twenty years is just is just a, a, a stonkingly great way to do it. Um, and so I think that's you know it, you're doing a fantastic thing um, on behalf of your. Soon to be born child, congratulations and thank you. Uh, if more people did, I think we'd be a lot better off. So, mate, well done. Hopefully that answers your question.
0: Motley Fool
1: Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Doc, we got a question from Jason. Jason says, love the podcast. You said, that you and Doc make finance easy to listen to. I think he's listening to some of the podcast again, mate. Um, we seem to get people who give us compliments that we don't deserve. I'm fun. not
2: I don't know. I mean maybe I make things really easy. You do, well you do that Yeah, I, okay. I do that, not definitely. Not
1: me. I mean Maybe that's what he, maybe he's just being polite. Anyway, he <laughs> says have you guys got any thoughts on businesses involved in the renewable energy transition? For example, Gen X Power, who are developing a renewable energy hub in North Queensland. Maybe we get questions like this semi regularly. So the broad the broad kind of Classifications, themes, and this one renewable energy or an energy is is kind of a, another sub theme we had a lot of questions about. Um, I have I have I have some thoughts, but I'll I'll let you go first. Thoughts on investing in renewable energy transition and companies to invest in.
2: So okay, I'm going to answer this more generically. I mean, investing in themes as such is hard, largely because if if a particular if you want to invest in a theme, then you probably want to take a basket-like approach, right? right? So I'll give you an example. If you want to invest in, um, instead of payments sector, mm-hmm. you want to find a bunch of companies that sort of fit that payments sector theme, and then you're going to invest in that, right? If you want to invest in a certain part of the fintech sector, then you want to find a bunch of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example might be, for example, if you want to invest in uh, uh, the, the trend of, Funds moving from you know um, f- from existing specialist uh, or existing platforms mm. like you know say um, Westpac or so on to uh, to specialist platforms for for funds like uh, right. You know, net wealth or Hub 24 and things like that. Mm-hmm. Then, I mean, one way to do that is you could find a leader and invest in that. Another option is, can you find a bunch of companies that operate in that space, assuming they're listed, and you you're basically betting on the entire sector in that mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, both are, uh, I guess, sector. You know. Tailwind or trend investing is possible as long as there are enough companies that meet your criteria for investing. Right. Um, in this particular case, I don't know whether there is there are enough. That's that's one. That's assuming that the sector itself is. Um, uh, what would I say? Um, is investment grade, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some sectors tend to be uh, very capital heavy and therefore they mm-hmm. tend to have poorer returns compared to some other sectors. Mm-hmm. You've got to consider that. Um, you know, like if you said you want to inv- in, invest in airlines, then you could invest in Rex and uh, Virgin and uh, Qantas, but you really want to do that, right? You have to figure out when you want to get into that sector right. uh, and then when you want to get out of that sector. Um, so so that's that's the general, I haven't heard of this company, so I have no thoughts to offer on that particular company. Overall, in terms of um, uh, renewable energy, I think I'm a big fan of the idea of renewable energy. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of storage of energy. Um, But I'm also cognizant of the fact that a lot of companies in this area have run into trouble because a lot of the stuff that you do um, is very capital intensive.
1: Mm. I... Yeah, look, I, I, I love your point on themes. I, I would just probably ask the question as to why you're keen to make this particular investment, Jason. I think it's if it's because you kind of like the idea that our grid will be less carbonized, then I'm absolutely with you. That doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's the right place to invest. So a bit like our ethical investing question earlier… You kind of be you need to be still need to be super rational with your investing, right? Unless you're investing in impact investments where you're literally funding someone to go and do something different on this company or any others. You're buying shares on the market that are already existing. You're not helping them by owning the shares. So if it's a, if it's a kind of a look, I hope this is successful. Um, you know, I, I want this to be true. I want to lend my support. I would probably encourage you not to do that, but rather um, lend your support to renewable energy transitions in different ways. If you think it's a business that again thematically that it will absolutely happen so that you feel like it's a cold-eyed, rational view of we all have more renewable energy in five years than we do today, more in 10 years or 20 years than we do today and I want to get on that, that bandwagon. That also makes a heap of sense. To Doc's point though, I think one of my favorite examples, if I told you in 1970 that air travel would go up phenomenally, thousands and thousands and thousands of percent, tens of thousands of percent, you probably would have said, you know what, great, I'm going to buy airline stocks because I'm going to make a fortune. Now, we know that since then, airlines as a group have effectively lost money in total, uh, let alone broken even or delivered market-beating gains for investors. And we talked about that a little bit last week with Qantas. The, the The reality is just because a trend is real doesn't mean you necessarily can make money from that trend. Sometimes you can. Uh, in Qantas's case, Virgin's case, although Virgin was around back then. Um, think about all the US airlines, not only like just Pan Am and Trans American and I can't think of the other names. You know, There's been so many that have gone bankrupt two and three and four times, even though over that period of time, the number of air travellers has just just exploded phenomenally. Um, the, the reality was that growth in that theme, even though the theme was right, there wasn't necessarily a great investment opportunity. I've got to say so far, um, and Doc, I think you're the same, We haven't, f- I haven't found a great renewable energy investment that passes my investment criteria that I think is a decent price and gives you a, a decent probability of success relative to the risk we're taking. And so the honest answer made is we haven't, got a view on that. Doesn't mean this company can't do particularly well. Gen X Power might be the next big thing and maybe we're going to miss it. So I'm not saying don't invest in it. Just be careful that it's the right uh, investment for you and done on the right, with the right rationale. Um, again, investing in themes can be fantastic, uh, but it also can potentially end up with the theme being proven out, but the investment case won't necessarily come with it.
0: Value stocks, market. Stock, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, I got a message from Tristan. Now, Tristan's
1: obviously young. He
2: says, with, what's up, Scott and Doc? So you're using the what's up as an indication of young?
1: Well, I've never heard you say what's up, Scott.
2: I'm just going to start saying what's up.
1: <laughs> Deal.
2: All right. You say what's up. I'll,
1: I'll come up with something.
2: Um, you have to say yo.
1: Well, no. You don't say that. If, you were, if we were really cool, we'd shorten what's up to sup. So I say sup, dog." Sup. Sup. Yo. <laughs> we have absolutely proven ourselves as to be not members of Gen Z. Um, he says, she says, love the podcast. I'm from England. But I live in the US and have loved my visits to Oz, Sydney, Perth, Dunk Island, Fraser Island, Monkey Mire, etc. How good's that? Tristan, glad you enjoyed Australia. Just wondering, does Australia have any conglomerates that give you exposure to that side of the world? As I'm looking to add something, and if not, what is the closest thing? Kind of like you can buy Berkshire and get exposure to a wide range of the US, or something like Alibaba gives you exposure to many dividend businesses in China or Asia. Keep up the great work and keep doing double mailbag in all caps, because... So that's what cool kids do when they're trying to, be, trying to add emphasis to these days. You put in caps. Double mailbag. Double mailbag. There's no real audio version of that. Maybe I should have to yell. Double it. mailbag. Boom. That, that's one way to do it. Full on, Tristan. <laughs> All right, Tristan, we've, we've um, hopefully got to the end of your question without too many distractions. Doc, are there any conglomerates that give a, exposure to a broad range of Australian business, like something like Berkshire
2: or Alibaba? Tristan Mitt, uh, first of all, thank you very much for the question. Thank you for actually writing to us and hearing us in the U.S. That is fantastic. What's up, Tristan? That is, what's up? Um, (laughs) And now with respect to, well, I don't think anything is as broad as Berkshire. Berkshire is really, really broad. Berkshire is also one of the largest businesses on the planet. Um, It's probably the
1: largest diversified business on the planet, I
2: think, too. It's probably the largest conglomerate, right? Yeah. The closest thing we've got to Berkshire, the mini Berkshire of Australia, would probably be Saul Patz, which we just talked about in another reference to another. So Washington, Saul H. Pattinson. Um... Is like a mini Berkshire. They are, Berksh- you know, they're Warren Buffett fans. Mm. They um, they ma- they hold significant holdings in a bunch of different businesses. They have got interests in, I guess, some private businesses as well. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, they also are an ETF owner or ETF provider or something like that. Uh, Sopads. Not, not not ETF, but something similar to ETFs. They have an ASX. Two hundred type of fund as well, right? Don't
1: they? They invest in ASX stocks, and they do own a share in a fund manager. But fund manager, yes.
2: Yeah. Okay, so I mean that's the closest. They have they have a long history of delivering outperformance mm. over. Like they're one of the oldest stocks listed on the ASX, I believe. Second uh, oldest, yeah. Second oldest, so probably about a hundred plus year of record and uh, market uh, beating returns, and they pay a dividend. Um, so, yeah, that's the closest thing I can think of um, if you want exposure to Australia. Uh, whether it gives you diversified exposure to Australia is a good question. I don't think it does. Um, yeah, and, and that's probably the downside if, you, if you're looking to exposure to Australia-specific. Yeah, I
1: think that's right. Doc, Doc's did right. Uh, Sopets is probably our... our Largest traditional investment conglomerate in a, in, a, in a world where conglomerates aren't particularly cool anymore. Uh, Berkshire and South Wales may well be the last of a species, I think, to some degree. But again, Doc's point, there is not a lot of diversification there. So, a bit, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot in one sense. Um, they own everything from their own internal property trust through to a stake in a coal mine through to a stake in a pharmacy wholesaler and a telecommunications company. So, I mean, that that is, yes, broad diversification. Um, but not, not equal diversification in the same sense, so there's not a lot of access to some other categories or other sectors in the market. So it kinda of depends what you want. If you're looking for uh, just if you're looking for a a business that gives you kind of something of everything, then Solpats isn't it. SOLPAT's is probably the, the, the other than ETF is the I think probably the most obvious single purchase that gives you access to a conglomerate like structure. West Farmers is probably the other. West Farmers is less con- uh, so is more concentrated than, than SolPats, particularly after having sold the coal spun off the coals business. Um, it's largely an industrial conglomerate now with a bit of mining, a bit of chemicals and fertilizer and bits and pieces. So, uh, West Homes is probably the other one. Um, otherwise, you've got DCF options. And again, maybe to Doc's point, depends on what you want exposure to. Um, as I've said before many times, the ASX is, is massively overweight. Mining and resources, uh, mining and finance. Now, for what it's worth, if you're investing from overseas, you actually might want that extra exposure. And so ironically for international investors who want more access to finance and mining, an Australian ETF might actually make more sense than from someone here at home who can only have that access. If you're looking to add something to it, that may be what you're looking for. So hopefully that makes a bit of sense, Sam. An ETF or Solpats, maybe Westfarm is probably the best options.
0: Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Doctor, next question's from Sam. Sam says, morning lads, a question for the podcast. Good idea. That's a great question. He says, I'm a shareholder of Costa here. I've taken an absolute bath of late. Share price has lost around three quarters of its value in the last year. Currently raising capital and offering shareholders one share for every four owned at $2.20. Would you consider this a buy? I believe in the fundamentals and the strategy of the company, but have already tried to catch this falling knife once. Is it a management issue or an untimely run of weather business conditions in your opinion? Now, again, we can't give personal advice, but what would you be telling Sam, Doc?
2: Well, you know, here's the problem with cost up So when the cost of, I think it's first downgrade, I thought, geez, this looks good. This is a good price. Then it did its second downgrade, and I thought, geez, this looks—you uh, know—maybe <laughs> all the bad news is now out, um, and the price looks good. Um, uh, now, hindsight is really an obviously great thing to mm-hmm. have. So the problem I think with Costa was um, Costa was was at, at one point was really expensive for basically being a fruit fruit and vegetables company, mm-hmm. right? So you're selling commodities which have commodity prices and the stock was priced at that time for a lot of growth uh, without de-risking for the commodity. That's easy for me to say in with the full benefit of hindsight because, you know, we've had, I mean, with consider context, right? We've had drought, we've had some, they've had fruit fly problems, they've had other issues. Um, so the, in a way, you could say they've got a lot of bad things mm. happen. Simultaneously, um, again, that's easy to see in hindsight. Very hard to uh, very hard to know a priori. So, I mean, it's been absolute bloodbath. It's you know one of one of my favorite things is if you're buying a company which has commodity type exposure and has got debt, you've got to be extra careful. And I think that's basically what I think. If you have debt, but the debt is depend is not dependent on your earnings, then that's one thing. But if you have debt that's dependent on you know, um, it has some covenants related to earnings and so on, mm. that's where you think you get into trouble. Uh, a lot of companies get undone uh, because of that. Mm. Uh, what would I say? Uh, here's the thing. I mean, if you think that the The balance sheet is now going to be appropriately, um, uh, or is is better positioned, uh, post this raise. Then, possibly now is the time to you know buy some and you know participate in the the capital raise. Um, that said, I mean you know there's nothing that stops them from having more weather problems, more drought, more whatever other problems. So I mean that's the thing these sort of companies i think my own suggestion is basically you know you should not overweight um companies that are tied to the commodity and i mean he, i think this this company from this price could actually be a serious multi-bagger so mm. i mean that's the other side to consider um that said this is not a company that i look at very carefully this is a company that uh, you have looked at more carefully so i mean those were just my generic thoughts. Great
1: thoughts, mate. Yeah, it's been a recommendation of ours that share advice. Or unfortunately, we've suffered every bit as much pain as you have, Sam. Uh, it's a funny question. So, we, we always knew that the agricultural cycles, weather, crop disease were possible. And in hindsight, maybe in the fullness of time, we were silly to put our toes in this water at all. Um, again, as we talked about last podcast in a different context. If, if they'd had a good five years before, the next bout of kind of bad weather or bad uh, disease, and they'd grow meaningfully in the meantime, it still would have fallen, but possibly from a higher point, and you'd be looking at a very, very different scenario today. Um, as Dr. those challenges are real. Um, we liked the fact that it has a growing global presence, and it is largely not... As, as seasonal as it once was, by by having crops planted in different environments, different geographies, it is largely able to remove the seasonality of its produce. Not the fact, not per location, but overall, it can supply effectively all year round on most of that on most of that um, most of that crop. Now, this I, I do think it's probably a, well. There's two things happened. I think management in hindsight probably took on too much debt. I think that's absolutely true, as Docs made that point. I think they've also been caught, though, in, a, in somewhat of a perfect storm. Now, without that debt, maybe they wouldn't have had the same problem. So it's a problem of their own making to at least a little degree. But more broadly, if you think about the way they, um, you know, we've had lower prices, disease, uh, crop damage, weather, um, you know, to some degree, you know, attempting to blame management, and maybe they, they have some blame. Uh, but when you get a perfect storm of, of those things all coalescing around the same time, you kind of wonder, well, what else was, was going to happen? Uh, again, in hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have gone down that path, but we did. Um, and now we've got to think about how we can look at the company moving forward. To your question about the rights issue, I have to say, I think, generally speaking, rights issues are funny things, right? Um, companies do them the same as all capital raisings. That they're, they're, they're psychological tools, rather than, I mean, they're finance tools, obviously. But you know, people end up taking part in capital raisings that they weren't already planning to buy the stock, but they buy it because someone says, hey, do you want to buy the stock? And so it kind of creates this, I don't know the right terminology for it in psychology, but it creates this whole idea for people of, okay, you've now asked me a question I need to respond to. If, you know, every company in the ASX is available for trade, for buying or selling every day of the week, six hours a day. So 30 hours a week, you can buy or sell every one of the 1,800, 900 companies in the ASX. Including ones you own, including ones you don't already own. There's all those options out there. And then all of a sudden the company says, hey, we're raising more capital. Do you want to take part? And then we get super focused on that one company and think, well, maybe I should then. Um, I think it's a bit of a, it's a psychological trap in a large degree. Um, because you simply don't, you know, unless it's your best idea at any point in time, just because they're asking you to buy some shares doesn't mean you should. So my answer, honestly, in most cases, I, I don't think you should take up most capital raisings because it's rare that it's the best idea out there. We kind of do because we're presented with it. And so it kind of feels like an easier decision if we've got spare cash. Now, that's like, that being said, I'm not saying cost is bad at this value. I'd still a buy for us at ShareAdvisor for what it's worth. I think the company is now, as Doc said, in a much stronger position, much more able to... Um, withstand because it's paid down some debt Uh, the vagaries of the weather and I think over the long term will still do well particularly from this point do I want to add more to it though that's a different question right so um, if I own the shares I'd I'd happily keep them if I didn't have them and I wanted to add them I would do that do I really want to increase my exposure by effectively 25% I think that's a personal question right my only question to you would be do you really think this is the best idea for money You've got, you got 100 bucks in the back pocket. Is this where you would invest the 100 bucks if they didn't do a capital raising? If the shares were simply available at 220 on the market, would you be rushing to, to do the deal? If the answer is no, then ignore the fact they have sent you a piece of paper that kind of makes you feel compelled to do something and go and invest the 100 bucks somewhere else. If the answer is yes, if you think Costa is literally the best idea you can find at the capital raising price, then by all means, take part.
0: Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Mate, our next question is from Boise, who's a somewhat regular correspondent. He says, G'day, Scott and Doc. Thanks for the brilliant podcast. Plenty of great learning shared and a few laughs along the way. Do you think he's laughing with us or at us? Um, No, with us. With us? Yeah. Are we laughing? We can laugh. Okay, we'll laugh. Well, thank you, Boise. (laughs) Uh, He says, looking to access the US market. Good man. And I noticed that brokers such as Charles Schwab require a fairly large initial deposit. I didn't know this mate originally, but they now require 25 grand to open an account, which is
2: this is a new thing I yeah, think. Yeah, trying to
1: kind of It used to be 3 grand. I'll we'll take our money but only if we've got enough of it, right? <laughs> Seems to be the problem. He says Well, you know, it's not unexpected given that it, mm. the brokerage is free. It came before the free brokerage. Though. Oh, did it come? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so ever since it's the free
2: brokerage, I am just buying just to check whether you can do that. <laughs> I'm just buying when I can one share. Doctor, right now, one of everything. Like, I am just going to buy one share for like fifty bucks, forty bucks, just because I can. Just this is like very can. liberating. I find it very liberating.
1: There's some uh, there's some psychological bias there to be too underpanded. We'll, we'll do that later. <laughs> he said. Boy he says steak appears to be a good way to get started with a smaller amount. Do you have any thoughts on this platform or similar alternatives? Just wary of it being very new. And he's right. Cheers, Boise. Doc, Charles Schwab, stake something else? How would you suggest our listeners, who don't necessarily have 25 big ones to go and put to work, get started investing in the US?
2: Well, well I mean you know stake is is good. I mean the only thing you have to remember with well, stake has a couple of advantages one of the one of the advantages is that you can actually buy fractional shares which is a, a weird concept to get around but I mean you know you can basically buy half a half a Google uh, share or like <laughs> right. one tenth of a Google share I guess. Um, the stake makes money off the foreign exchange transactions Correct. so keep that in mind. Um, the the transaction itself of buying is free but you're paying money somewhere else mm-hmm. um, but it's a good place to start I think if you um, you know you don't have 25 grand to shell to f- for opening a Charles Schwab account right. uh, which, which which is really a high you know a high barrier uh, to to cross um, there are a couple of others I mean I use um, an account from Saxo Markets and mm-hmm. um, now they're relatively inexpensive in brokerage terms, but you know they have. Uh, uh, everybody takes money one way or the other. They have a point one two percent per annum, um, you know, what they call essentially an asset holding fee.
1: Oh, I hate that.
2: So I mean you know point one two percent of a small amount is probably not. A lot, but if you're going to keep your account, I mean, right. here's the problem, right? This is a very sticky thing, right? If you keep your account over a long term, you start with five thousand and maybe one day it's like hundred thousand dollars. That's exactly. a lot of money you're paying on the point, you know, and 100000 dollars is actually quite a yeah. bit of money, yeah. and it's it's really for the same service. Nothing has really changed. So this is it. That's yeah, it. Gets made. Yeah, exactly. it's it's a pretty scalable way of making money.
1: <laughs> That's right. um, hey, maybe by the by the uh, by the broker don't use them. Is that right? <laughs>
2: yeah, well, probably. Um, <laughs> I mean, but their the trades are cheap. i and I used. Largely, Mm. for a couple of reasons. One, because they allow international access, not just across uh, to the US, but to essentially anywhere in the world, all developed markets. And they also allow you to buy ASX uh, stocks, and they they actually cost. And here's here's a little funny thing. I think they they can't charge you the AUM um, on the ASX stocks. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I mean, I I think that's the case. But you know, don't quote me on that. So that's another option. I mean, they mm. would their minimum, I think, is $3,000, which is more palatable compared to the Charles Schwab's. Yes, um, much. Uh, I guess the final thing is if you're not going to be buying that often, you could also have your account with any of the major uh, banks and mm. then trade internationally, although the cost of trading internationally is pretty expensive in that case. Um, so there's a little bit of trade-off. I mean, maybe on balance, Stake is a good platform um, in, in this sort of situation. That, that's what I can think of.
1: Yeah, I like that. I think it's a um, – yeah, so uh, look, any any U.S. broker, what you want to make sure, frankly, is they are um, insured. Uh, so you want to make sure they're a member of FINRA and SIPC or SIPC as they like to call it, um, basically to make sure that the broker you're using has the protections. It's effectively an industry body that makes good any uh, account holder if the business itself goes broke or for some other reason is unable to make good on the holdings that you own. Uh, in this case, Stake has Cipic insurance for up to five hundred thousand dollars worth of cash and securities. Uh, that should cover you. Uh, so I reckon that's that's not that's not a bad thing. Always, always, always make sure it's got funeral and Cipic um, uh, membership. That that's important. And Stake, I think, is a really good option. The, the reality is, for Australians investing overseas, you're always you gonna get stung one way or the other. It, it's either on the foreign exchange with Stake, or it's with an AUM fee and Saxo, or it's you know high brokerage with Comsec International Trading, or it's something else. That's always going to be the case to some degree. Uh, I think, boy, you know, look, Boise, if if the issue is twenty five grand, I, I get it. Um, then go with the other guys. You know, it, it's 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 not going to be pretty. Uh, even 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 a Saxo, so look at zero point one percent is not going to kill you. Um, it's what one hundred bucks on one hundred thousand dollars or something like that. So it's not you know it's 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 not fun. It's not nice. Um, but but it's not going to not going to kill you in, in in relative terms. That's the equivalent of a couple of trades. Um, You know, Again, you don't want to pay money, you don't have to pay, but generally speaking, I wouldn't let it put you off. So maybe that's the key message is, by all means, get the best option you can, uh, but don't let the cost put you off because the reality is going to be that if you can get anything like the sort of gains you think you can probably achieve investing in the US, a 0.1% fee or a foreign exchange fee with stake or something else isn't going to be the end of the world. Um, Just just be mindful that you are going to kind of pay one way or the other,
0: uh, at least until we end up with more seamless international trading. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Doc, our next question is from Samuel. Samuel is a regular correspondent. Thank you, Samuel, for kidding uh, for us up. Here's his story. He says, every Friday I trudge through the nine to five. Looking forward to that moment, I can tune in and further myself on my goal to financial independence by educating myself with your
2: podcast. How good's that? That sounds like awesome.
1: See again though, Samuel's obviously been—you've obviously paid these guys off because then he says, "Thanks to Doc for your intelligent insight in all matters," and cheers, Scott. Behavioral finance is an interesting topic. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, basically, I'm here and you're smart. Is I think you think what what Samuel's saying? So Samuel, have a good hard look at yourself, mate. You may never get another question answered on this podcast at least while I'm controlling the mailbag. He says, uh, he says, behavioral finance is an interesting topic. Do you have any tips to help young investors stick out the rough times with the stock?
2: Yeah, but the question is actually for you, uh, because the, sure. it's about it's about behavioral investing, which is an interesting topic. Like which is after, so I mean, I just got the intelligent insight, but actually, the question is for you. You, <laughs> you like, <laughs> you're on a roll. Here, I'm not Scott. sure
1: it is. I'm not sure it is. Depends on the punctuation. Anyway, he says specifically, bad things are currently happening with the stock that you chose, but your investment thesis for the long term has not really changed. You just mistimed your entry point, or at least that's what you tell yourself. That's a really good question from Samuel. It's one of those ones that. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll have a go at this one first. mate. you can, you can jump in. Um, uh, look, I think the first thing, Samuel, is it's so easy to think about. Um, investing we talked about context a little while ago i think that that's this is the most important part of of how you think about investing right we talked last week about why tech taken from 17 to 38 then back to 26 or so uh, depending on what what price you look at what point you look at you can say well i made a fortune or i lost a fortune or i didn't buy or i could have bought or i wish i'd bought uh, or you know the human mind is just super super unevolved as i've said lots of times to be really good at investing the best thing you can do, mate, is be absolutely convinced with the investment thesis you're making. In fact, the best way to write out the tough times is to actually be okay before you get there. Now, that seems a little bit kind of counterintuitive, or at least not very helpful, particularly if the tough times are already happening. But the more you believe in your investment thesis, and you already mentioned that you you feel like it's still on track, then that's that's the best defense you've got. Because if you think, look, this is a great business. I expect this business to be meaningfully larger in you know, five or 10 years' time. Everything in the business is working well. So corporate travels is a great example, right? I own shares. It's a recommendation of ours. We own it at the Motley Fool. It's, you know, the, the short attack came through a dozen or 12, 12 months or so ago, uh, and the shares fell from high 20s to 18, 17, the 19, that kind of price. Um, at that point, you know, it, that hurt a lot. It hurt me, it hurt our members, um, and it felt really crappy. The The... What I comforted myself, I should say, with was organic growth was still 20 25%, or total growth was still 20 25%. The business was still doing everything it said it was going to do. This was simply a bit like Doc talked about with tech last week, just one of those cases where the share price had changed, but nothing about the businesses. There was no reason to believe the business itself was any different to what it was previously. And again, the same as those tech stocks, and this is probably another good example of you know whether you're looking at you know, corporate travel or, or, or software as a service. The, the long-term story is all that matters. And if you can be – the more confident you can be with your thesis before you buy, the greater the chance you've got of sticking it through. Mate, Much more than that, uh, I mean, the problem of behavioral finances, most of, the, most of them feel like motherhood statements, right, particularly if you're already struggling because, I can say, just calm down. You go, yeah, fine, I'm not calm. Thanks very much. Or I can say, just think about the long-term. You say, well, that's fine, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to do that, but I'm looking at today's share price and, and wondering what's going on. Um, it's a hard one, mate. I, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. Um, I think honestly you just need to think to yourself you know do I like the company do I like what it's doing Do I feel good about its long term and if you do then you've just kind of try to resign yourself to the fact that um, you know this is it's like surfing a wave right it's going to be a bumpy and and, and kind of uh, somewhat uncomfortable circumstance sometimes but if the long term this is correct if your investing approach is right you will end up getting out of it you know with, with something intact the only other thing I would say before I throw the doc is History is a great teacher, right? And so grab, anyone who's listening, Google, Google Vanguard index chart and click on the PDF and you'll see 30 years worth of stock market history. And as I said before, you, you can't see the 87 stock market crash anymore. Some of us are old enough to remember that. Um, it, it, yeah, that. That's fallen off the chart because we're now 30 years past it. But it, it, when, when that was still on the chart, you could almost not see it. You had to really look hard to see what was at the time a fundamentally hugely disruptive event. The dot com crash, you can hardly notice. The GFC is noticeable, but by the time you have dividends back, it doesn't look that scary at all. And so, you know, sometimes history is the best teacher, right? The, the whole idea of like, if you can try and correlate the way people felt and then what happened since, it puts some of that panic, some of that concern really into perspective. And I think for me, that's for me personally, that's been a huge way of, you know, I know this will happen, I know it'll come, I know it'll, you know, regardless of, of what I think about the stock, what I think about the market, tough times will come. Once you can kind of resign yourself to that, educate yourself about it, expect it, and know that in the past when it's happened, the market's always gone onto higher levels, that's a pretty compelling way to think about investing for the long term. All right, Doc, over to you. What do you got
2: for me? I actually got nothing really to add to that. I think you covered everything. Yep. Revisit the thesis. The thesis doesn't look right. And, you know, think about the long term. Motley
0: Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash
1: triple M. Doc, I... See, our listeners think I make jokes about our podcast and our, our comments we get from our members. And I kind of do. But I've got to say, our, members, our listeners don't make it easy for me. So here's a question from Damien. And, I, you know, here we go. Hi, Scott. First time call a long time listener. I love that, Damien. Thank you for the talkback reference. Uh, for those of a certain age, you will remember that uh, that, that was the, the staple of talkback radio for many, many years. So, Damien, thank you. He then says, I listen to you guys waffle whenever my wife is not around. So again, I'm not sure how offended I should be by that. Um, his wife's not there and we're waffling. Mm. On the flip side, he wants to listen to us, so maybe there's something positive to take. If I, if I grab a kernel of positivity, Damien, I think it's that. Damien says, we're early 40s with a young family, two mortgages on two properties in Melbourne, and balanced on super about $300,000 combined. We want to invest outside of this and want to know your thoughts on slightly negative gearing between one dollars and $200,000 of borrowed funds against the home on a diversified range of stocks. The loan horizon would be ten to fifteen years. Any thoughts appreciated? And he said, "Is it too late for wishing a foolish Christmas?" No, it's not. I mean, well and truly before Christmas, mate, So you've got him well. Lots there, doc. So, early forties, young family, a couple of small mortgages on two properties, and balance of three hundred thousand dollars in super combined. So in a pretty good position. Now we have a you have your view in particular on property. I've got a view on property. But he's saying they want to invest outside this. Should they slightly negative gear some borrowed funds against the home? I assume this is probably the personal home, but in any case, it doesn't matter, on a diversified range of stocks. What do you say, mate?
2: Okay. So, uh, Damien, uh, good day to you. Um, Number one, I think I'll say is, whatever I say, this is a very, very high-level general thought. Um, Again, you have to really, like, I mean, you have to consider your circumstances here. Um, So, some very general thoughts. I think, like, the uh, the mortgages, I'm guessing, they're investment properties and that looks like a pretty low amount. So very conservatively geared, it looks like. Yep. Um, which, which is great, I think. And here here's the thing I would say about borrowing against the property. So I don't know, for example, how much um, mortgage you've got on your current property, right? And I don't know how serviceable that debt is currently um this is where it becomes very individual so my rule of thumb <laughs> this is what i use which is i think ultra conservative is um i want the mortgage to be serv- serviceable on one income so we have two income family i need it to be serviceable by one income that's my level of comfort and why is that man well this is very simple reason right i mean you know uh, stuff happens right you know if one person stops mm. working for whatever reason something happens in the family one person can't work one person just dies i mean again you have insurance that's like it's going to pay for stuff again insurance is very important for that reason um mm. i just feel more comfortable that way that it gives me a lot of flex and the and you know i, I realized by taking that sort of approach i i I'm not being as aggressive as I, I could be but I, there is a flip side to that the flip side is that if you know if downturns bad things you know recessions stock market you know pullbacks these things happen and the ability to act when others can't or others are panicking is extremely powerful it gives me um, a lot of uh, mental comfort and it also makes me feel that I'm more in charge than I probably am, right. which is very helpful uh, to maintain a, uh, to maintain the cool. So I'm, I'm putting this out largely because this is how I do things. Now, from a very practical standpoint, if someone has um, a lot of the mortgage in their home actually paid off or the money is basically sitting in their offset account or something like that, I think it makes sense to actually take that money and invest it. Uh, largely because interest rates are like what you could get a home loan for um, less than three percent today. Right. Right. So if you can get that, I mean, you know, maybe one thing to consider is to refinance your house and then you know have it have um, uh, have have an interest rate that's really low and have a uh, have a payment that is really um, affordable and and still you probably land up with some cash and you're probably likely to be ahead if you take a long term view um, by investing. In productive assets, um, in the stock market, so I think, I think that really can work. But I think, and it, you really need to consider dynamics. So that I mean, that's something worth considering. I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out.
1: I like that. Borrowing is really tough. Like, Buffett's got a line that says leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke, and I think that's the problem. Whenever you but if you include leverage in any of these decisions, it, it, increase, it just increases the straight out risk as you've already said, Doc. That, like that's that's the unavoidable reality. And uh, I think it's another Buffettism. To, you know, he basically you never want to go back to square one. You know, you're in your early forties, you've got yourself in a pretty good position. If you found yourself having to go back to square one, starting again in your forties, that's very different to being able to capitalise and grow on what you've already got. So I think that that's that's always the the concern. Now I've got to say. And this is also hard, right? So people will then be saying, "Well, listen to this, doc. Well, we, we can handle it. We can we can do it sensibly and safely. And you know what? That's for most people. That's right. I've always used the example that um, you know, if I said, well, some people don't use it well, and you know, every time there's a, a big market full, there's margin calls, and people are wiped out, and they say, yeah, yeah well, I wouldn't do that. I'm, I'll be more conservative. And and it's kind of like, as I say, 90% of us think we're above average drivers, right? <laughs> so we all think we're going to be the exception to the rule and maybe we will be, some of us at least, but depending on how many people are listening to this podcast right now, there's a decent chance that at least one person here gets wiped out by by taking on some debt, even if others don't. Now, maybe you're that one person, maybe you're not. Do you really want to take that risk for you and your family? I think that's the open question you need to, to resolve for yourself, as, as Doc's already said. Purely theoretically, if I could have a non- Callable, i.e. you no margin calls? Which is exactly what you're saying with borrowing against the house, um, investment in effectively an A6 ETF, if nothing else, and I could I could load up on that knowing there's no margin call. I think the as long as the potential return is larger than the interest rate you're paying, which Docs already mentioned, then it kind of is a relatively um, lower risk, not lower risk, lower risk investment approach to make. As long as, and again, Docs already covered this, you know you can definitely pay it off, right? So. It's kind of, one of life's a funny thing. The the um, averages are wonderful, except when they apply to us, right? So, so just because ninety nine people out of hundred don't have a problem, someone one person does have that problem. And back to the kind of the average driver thing I was talking about before. So, I'm just really, really mindful that in whatever circumstance you end up finding yourself, having that debt, if it's going to end up. You better, you better for getting rich slower than going broke quickly, put it that way. I think that that's probably the bottom line. So, I'm not against it theoretically. Doing it into the house is much, much better than taking out a margin loan. Being broadly diversified is spectacularly good as long as you're genuinely diversified. You know, four banks is not diversification. Um, I know you're not saying that by the way, but you know, people say, I'm diversified. I've got all four banks. It's like, well, that's not diversification. Um, I mean, <laughs> It makes sense. Long-term time horizon, makes sense. long interest rate makes sense. These things are all really sensible approaches. Just be mindful there's always the chance that it can go badly and you think you want to take the risk. And again, I couldn't criticise you for necessarily doing it, but you think you'll take the risk, you think it couldn't happen to you, it's going to happen to somebody and I hope it's not you guys. So just just do me a favor, be a little bit careful and make sure you don't. With all the best of intentions, even, even super sensibly, circumstances are circumstances, life happens.
0: Value stocks, market stock market index share market. This is Modley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m.
1: Finally, Doc, we get one that doesn't, doesn't have a backhanded compliment to me.
2: All right, okay, let's do oh, it. So about about
1: time I would have thought. All right, Gavin says hi, Scott and Doc. One for the awesome podcast. Thank you, Gavin.
2: This is th- like this is just a this is a it's a it's a thing saying the podcast is good. Nothing about us.
1: I think the other podcast, are not we? No. No? Wouldn't matter who was he?
2: Well, like, I mean, Will is the podcast human. <laughs> That's true. Will
1: gets all the credit. That's probably fair, actually. All right. So, Will, Will, well done. Uh, Gavin says, How come great businesses like Berkshire, for you, Scott, and Apple, for Doc, have such large cash piles sitting around? I've always thought these piles are there so the company can be agile and snap up a bargain acquisition, invest in R&D, or something along those lines. However, it's been years now. And these cash positions are just getting larger. In personal finance, if I had a large cash position in my saving account getting a horrible interest rate, that is poor planning, and my money would be better invested elsewhere. What do you think Berkshire and Apple are waiting for? Seems to me if I was to buy either Apple or Berkshire, I would be in essence partially investing in a fixed interest cash position alongside the rest of the business. Great podcast and full on. I love this question from Gavin. You are. I love it. You are allegedly an Apple fan. I, I, I've heard. I don't mind Berkshire. So much
2: cash, mate. What's I'm going to answer this question with, with, because I think we were talking about this. Actually, this is you a great co- question, Gavin. I was uh, making a comment that uh, actually Apple is a better cash allocator than uh, Berkshire. Oh dear, um, dear. And, and the point is, so here's some You've lost co- all credibility now, dude. Uh, Huge category. So I think you know Tim Cook as the CEO of Apple is probably one of the most underrated oh, CEOs in big go. tech. Uh, this is an opinion. This is a minority opinion that nobody agrees with, <laughs> but that's fine uh, because those other people don't own Apple stock, so so they're missing out, which is which is also fine. Which is their choice, really. You know, you don't want to make money, then that's your problem. Um, but but anyways, putting those those. Uh, the humorous side. Here's the thing with Apple. There was a lot of free. So Apple has been generating between fifty to sixty billion dollars of free cash flow. That basically flows through to the uh, the cash balance. Mass um, lot of data. Um, every year. It's one of the uh, most cash generative businesses that I know of. Um, and one of the problems with US tax legislation has been that profits that are sitting abroad there's there some taxation issues with that mm. so basically double taxation issues um, and apple and many other tech companies and many other actually US companies that are multinational have been lobbying for the tax laws to change which only has happened right. recently right. so Uh, Apple, once Tim Cook became CEO in 2011, in 2012, they basically started um, a dividend and a buyback program, uh, which is, you know, and and the buybacks are interesting because they're they're basically a form of dividend, but they're a form of dividend being paid to long-term shareholders because what you're effectively doing is you are taking out the shares from circulation and effectively you're getting a larger pie of the business. And therefore, if you're a long-term shareholder, you get the benefits of essentially being a long-term shareholder and assuming that Mm -hmm. earnings are growing in the same time period. Mm. Uh, this really works in your favor. This is important largely because uh, in the United States and like here, there's no frankings and things like that. So there's no other mechanism by which you can benefit from a lower tax, I guess. Um, and you get the lower tax benefit from effectively being a long-term shareholder. Um, so, so I really like the buyback approach. So I mean, so... What Apple did initially was they started borrowing money against the cash that they had uh, offshore and then they started using that for a massive buyback program. This is one of the largest buyback programs that has been around mm. uh in recent times. Um so Apple's cash pile has actually steadily been decreasing. The problem for Apple is that it's got such a phenomenal cash generative machine that you know they buy back shares, they pay some dividend, and again more cash gets added. But now net cash after debt sits at less than I think ninety billion dollars. You know, so it's it's steadily decreasing. Apple has said that its goal is to be essentially cash neutral, um, which means it probably you know, have some cash, but they don't want to have cash on the balance sheet. This is not a desire that they have. And that, that cash, excess cash is going to be returned back to shareholders. This is an awesome situation for long-term, uh, shareholders. Um, at the same time, you know, this is, the company has optionality. It has been investing. It has all these different type, you know, uh, Apple TV plus has started, I've started watching some shows The you know, at least the initial few that I've watched are really good. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're spending the money on launching new business lines. They're investing in R and D, um, Apple is a very frugal company. This is something that, you know, you really need to study Apple to understand. It's very frugal. It does not. Its largest acquisition for a trillion dollar company is a $3 billion acquisition of Beats which really gave it the Beats line of products plus the Apple Music as we know it today. Mm. Apple is very, very selective in what it buys, and it only buys things that has a cultural and a tech fit. Um, So it does not buy for, you know, so-called synergies and things like that. Apple makes a lot of... Apple last year spent about $700 million or so in acquisitions, but, you know, for a company of its size, it's really small. Actually, $500 million or so. Um, So I, I think, you know, Apple, I think, is doing the right things in terms of capital allocation, um, Berkshire, I don't follow that closely, but, you know, um, I would say in Berkshire's case, it's a question, again, that a lot of cash is being generated by the operating businesses that Berkshire owns in entirety. Mm-hmm. And Warren Buffett is having a hard time investing in it. he should just give the money to me. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll invest all the money for him. Um, I mean, you know, Berkshire's largest stock position is Apple, actually. So, I mean, maybe he should have just bought more of Apple shares uh, when he started buying because, you know, he'd be sitting in a lot of capital gains right now. Um, one of the things I think to keep in mind, in, in, especially with in, in respect to Apple, is as Apple is doing buybacks, Berkshire's actually allocation or percentage ownership of apple actually keeps going going up so uh yeah i I think you know again in warren buffett's case i think he doesn't have places to invest his funds um to to his point i think i would say that it's hard to invest if you've got 100 billion dollars you need to invest in liquid companies you you know i mean that's the amount with which you could buy 10 different 10 billion dollar companies so i think he's got a challenge uh, on hand, maybe he should be actually paying a dividend, or maybe should be doing more buybacks. Those are the sort of things to consider for him.
1: Yeah, um, uh, Alice won't be surprised to know, Doc, that I think you've been way too too uh, kind about Apple. Although I would say I think you've also been a little bit kind about Berkshire. The the answer, honestly, over time is that we don't know yet what the what you know whether or not Apple and Berkshire have been too. Uh, what's the right word? lacks in their treatment of, of their balance sheets. I think that you know, they've both got too much money on their balance sheets. I think both should be either finding places for that money or returning it to shareholders. I think Apple has been way too lazy with its balance sheet. I think Berkshire arguably is probably been the same depending on what happens next, right?
2: Berkshire is more lazy. Apple, Apple has been actually actively doing something about nah, it. I'm not talking anywhere near enough, but anyway. The, 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 and that's what I mean about the
1: answer to what happens bias, next, right? Very big bias. No, no, no. no. It, well, it depends on what happens next, so that's my point. So if, if Berkshire can find a $100 billion business to buy that ends up giving it value and, the, and that was worth having sat on the cash for five years, then it will be a good deal. If Buffett still can't find it another five years' time, then we can look back and say, absolutely, Buffett was – Sleep at the wheel, not doing more with that cash when he should have been doing it in 2019.
2: He's going to just buy another Heinz, which is going to be probably a disaster. Well, I think that's so. what we
1: don't, I mean, he wants to, he doesn't want to buy Heinz. He wants to buy something private. So what he's looking for is a whole business purchase that he can bring into the Berkshire family without having to buy listed shares. Or he doesn't want to buy listed shares. He wants to use that cash to buy a big wholly owned business. Um, Mars has been talked about a lot. I think it's too big for Berkshire to buy. Um, Hershey's another one in the, in the chocolate space. Uh, you know, if, if I said if in five years' time Berkshire's got $200 dollars on the balance sheet, then it, then it's waste of money. It should have, as you said, Doc, either been paying a dividend or buying back shares or finding some other way of reinvesting that cash. You, sell you can sit on cash and get subpar returns for a short to medium period of time, as long as when you eventually spend that money, you make money. If there's another GFC, which I think is probably some sort of decline is what Buffett's waiting for. If you can go and buy something for you know cents on the dollar, buy, uh, pick a company, uh, what can I think of, Nike for half price, well, then it's been worth sitting on that money because the returns you're going to get, you know, when you could have been investing something else is going to be well and truly worth it. If you can't or you don't, then that's going to, in hindsight, have been a waste of time and a waste of money. I think that's the thing we don't know the answer to from either of those companies just yet. But I do think that having that, that quantum of cash – is almost unconscionable if they can't subsequently find a decent use for it. They're simply, as, as our questioner says, having earning, earning nothing on that cash, effectively nothing on that cash while it sits around or management twiddle their thumbs in both cases. I think it's a really, really good question. It's something I, Gavin, hopefully both Tim Cook and Warren Buffett will show me that I was too harsh and they will find ways to use that money in a really shareholder-friendly way.
2: Tim Cook is still ahead of Buffett here. And has more, uh, and has the ability to b- buy the same businesses Zero that Buffett G. can. So Zero I think, G. on my point of view, I think I'm going to give Tim Cook the credit here, and Buffett the thumbs down. I'm surprised, Doc.
1: You've never ever said how great Tim Cook is or how terrible Buffett is before. Well,
2: Buffett, I mean, there's, there's basically no reason to own the Berkshire sta- <laughs> stock unless you want underperformance. I mean, it's the whole reason to own it is to basically. By underperformance.
1: Well, I mean that, that's the that's the what's next question, right? Like, I mean, so investing is always what's next, but at the moment that that's absolutely that's true. been like a
2: ten years of underperformance.
1: Basically. That's
2: right. Well, I don't know, ten years, but yeah, that's right. And I I would almost bet that barring a a sort of um, a tail event. Mm. Yeah, right, another right. ten years of underperformance. Well, and, and nobody—I mean, I mean, nobody should be investing thinking there's going to be a tail event, right? Because Aww, I mean, I so mean, funny. and, and Buffett—I mean, the tail event might Buffett might just die. He's like ninety, right? Um, so I, I mean, hmm. I really think Buffett's allocation is really questionable at this point because I mean, if you are investing. Like, I mean, we would tell no one to invest like this. And I would give no credit to Buffett if a GFC-like event happens because nobody knows when that happens. And I am pretty sure Buffett also does not know when a GFC is going to happen. I think he's waiting uh, for a
1: GFC, but he's waiting for decently priced assets. But that's
2: not going to happen, right? How is the decently priced asset going to show up all of a sudden in a low interest rate environment when the whole world is at a low interest rate? What makes him think, what makes him a genius compared to anybody else to think that he's going to get half-priced assets? He's not going to get them. There's just no way he's going to get them unless a tail event happens, which does not make him a genius. Is I you, don't think, to,
1: you don't have to be a genius, but you if you're however, however you get you're entitled to get credit for market beating returns however you get them. If Buffett's able to get market beating returns, he hasn't for
2: that. ten years. Like I mean, his record for ten years is pretty appalling, right? It's not appalling. It's pretty appalling. It's appalling. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, appalling. there's no reason to own the <laughs> Berkshire stock. Right now, in my opinion, it's got stoogey, leaky, moat businesses. It's got these high PE multiple companies like Coca-Cola that he owns. And it's got a lot of lot of cash. Yeah, there we go. That's my B- Berkshire winch. No reason to own Berkshire. And somehow,
1: and somehow Tim Cook's $100 billion is okay.
2: Yeah, Tim Cook is fine.
1: I'll let our listeners decide that for themselves. How about we move on? Let's move on. We'll have a cold shower and then we'll come back.
0: <laughs> real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: All right, mate. Back, back on the straight and narrow. Question from Edward who sent us a message both on Instagram and Facebook just to make sure we got there. So, thanks, Edward. Appreciate that. Not our Edward, by the way. Not, not Ed Vester. That, that's was
2: exactly that? what I was thinking. Is it, <laughs> is it our Edward? <laughs>
1: So, we, and this is a question similar to uh, similar to some previous questions. I sent, my, "Hey guys, love the podcast. I have a question about my portfolio. I'm 22. Thanks for rubbing it in. And when I first started investing a couple of years ago, I used a broker, and he swayed my portfolio into a very bank-heavy portfolio. I've been thinking lately, and especially now after your latest podcast, about what a good uh, bit of uh, about a good bit of general advice you may have. as asking for. As I own three of the four major banks. I've always been there for the long term, so I never thought of selling. Any ideas for a similar person in a similar situation? Cheers and full on. I think it would saying what do we think about mounting three of the big four banks in large swathes, mate? Is what I think's happening.
2: You've already said this so many times today, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this is the most repeated advice of the day, or yeah, not is, even not really advice. I blame but, you. I blame uh, you. But it's the fact, right? I mean, <laughs> so the broker has basically done exactly bought in the ETF.
1: Well, indirectly. <laughs> yeah, they, they used to say no one gets fired for, for buying IBM. IBM I reckon that's, n- that's no, no, no broker loses business by assisting people buy the banks,
2: right? Well, how could you, you know... Even, even, even CBA, think, like, well, hey, what else is doing? I, I just did the right thing. What CBA, uh, ANZ, yeah. and uh, Westpac. Probably those are the... I would even take a guess. They're CBA, Westpac, and ANZ. Probably. And probably poor NAB got left out.
1: I, uh, look, uh, I, if you're 22, I don't think you have much business owning the banks, quite honestly. I, uh, maybe they'll do okay. Um, maybe they won't. I don't see how they are the businesses most likely to deliver market beating performance over, frankly, doing, uh not something, um, uh, was it, frankly, Edward, yeah, the, the next forty-five years or so you're invested for, um, banks will be okay. Uh, I reckon you can do much, much, much better. So uh, we can't give personal advice. I don't know. The other thing I would say, by the way, is, is if you're going to add money regularly to that account, you may not need to sell anything, right? Because the banks will become smaller portions as you add more money to something else. Uh, but I would hate to think that by the time you get to thirty, you've got. A decent chunk in the banks. Are just, uh, I just, you know, in the in the realm of things that are likely to beat the market over the over the long term, I, I, banks are in the bottom second bottom quartile for me. Doc?
2: Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think yeah, if you're 22, you've got such a long horizon. Yeah. Why wouldn't you invest in other growth opportunities instead of? Op- Investing in banks, which are which don't have much growth. Yeah,
1: you, there. you get nice dividends. And look, if you're an investor who wants dividends and you feel good about that, from now till sixty five, you get money in your account every six months. I mean, you know, I can understand it. I just think you're right now. You want to be either matching or beating the market. I just don't think the banks will do that for
0: you. I agree. Get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple m.
1: Doc, question from Dean who says, "Hi, Scott and Doc, absolutely love the podcast and have learnt a lot. Thank you."
2: That sounds oh, like it? a very genuine, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm sure he didn't even think he had to say that, so he get his question asked.
1: Uh, he uh, he asked about opening a trading account for a ten year old. We've covered that, I think. So hopefully, Dean, you've, you've heard that, and you're good with that. But he then asks, "What is your view on miso blast as a long term investment?" I say, "I've got no idea." You?
2: Okay, so uh, is <laughs> I've got some idea. i sure this, like, this is like this is going to open a lot of uh, wounds for me. <laughs> So I've, had, I've actually owned the Mesoblast stock since probably 2010. Okay. The stock has absolutely gone uh, in one direction, which is backwards. Oh, dear. Um, so, so Mesoblast is a very interesting company in the sense that it's um, making these stem cell-based uh, treatments, and it's called allergenic stem cell treatments. It basically means that you don't actually need to match it with, um, um, with a particular donor. Which, if okay. you have to match it, the particular basically, if you have to match the stem cells, then what happens is that you can't really actually scale the manufacturing. They are basically doing what is called allergenic, which basically means off the shelf stem cell treatments are possible. Huh, um, cool. And if this thing's here's the thing with mesoblast, like which is actually true for most biotechs, if this thing succeeds, this is, uh, it's, this is a big deal, right? But the path to Becoming that big deal mm. is full of potholes, rocks, <laughs> falling off the cliff, and pretty much everything possible has happened with Mesoblast. Right. Um Mesoblast, back in the day, in two thousand uh, ten or eight or nine, I forget exactly when, had a huge deal that they um, that they had signed uh, with a company, uh, which actually gave them like over two billion dollars of cash and a lot of milestone payments and things like that. Where when the where um, well, in the pipeline, that company, I forgot the name of that company, that company eventually got bought out by another company called Thiva, mm. which then decided to make another big acquisition down the path. And then they had to shed a bunch of things. And then one of the things that they shedded was this relationship with Mesoblast. Ouch. Um, and that's not a good thing to have for a biotech which has got no product Yet, in the market has a bunch of things on, on fire in various trial phases, and it needs money to actually run these trials, and so this talk has been diluted like anything.
1: Um, which is kind of not all that unusual for biotechs, right?
2: It's is not at all unusual for biotechs. Again, biotechs have very low success rates. Mm. And even if, yeah. So, I mean, to, I guess if I had to give Mesoblast credit, they've got a product now that's approved in Japan, um, which is earning some money. Um, they've got the potential to actually have the same product now uh, selling in in China through a, through a licensing agreement that will bring them some money. And they're running deep trials in the u.s to actually uh, get it approved uh in in the u.s now if that succeeds that'll be the first commercial product that they've got which might open the doors for other products they've got they're targeting some very very important areas it's targeting lower back pain which is a very common problem it's like almost like an epidemic mm-hmm. um they have a heart um heart stem uh issue which they are you know one of the valve issues which they're trying to solve it's another big area they have something in renal which is another big area so i mean if things come to pass this could be a a huge multi-bagger uh but again the probably in odds of that happening are pretty small so keep that in mind um what do i do i plan to just keep holding my shares i don't have a lot of shares in them but i i you know i've held them this long i'll continue to hold them um would you buy them today if I had no position and if I had a, like, you know, if I had no position in mesoblast mm. and uh, I'd, I'd call it, a, it's worthy of buying. And they've had got some decent reports or decent progress of late. Um, so I would consider that if you have a small portion allocated to speculative investments, if that's what you do, then it's worthy. It's, it's a good speculative bet, but it's a speculative investment in that sense. It's, 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 yeah like i mean the things that can go wrong with mesoblast is very different from the things like we talked about like for costa right costa right, things that right. can go wrong you kind of know yep. mesoblast things that can go wrong are in many ways unknowable <laughs> as well so but right, b- right. b- b- the upside too is huge yeah if, if things are- so i mean you know if you if you have no position this is worthy of a speculative position in my view um mm. how big is really up to people Mine is really tiny uh, relative to my mm. portfolio. Um, I'm just going to continue holding it. Like, again, like when I buy biotechs, I really buy them and then some of them go to zero. Like, I mean, that happens. Consider yourself warned.
1: <laughs> but it <laughs> yeah. could go well. Yeah.
2: Mate, we made it. Did
1: we made it? We made it through our mailbag edition. Thank you very much for listening all this way. I will be back next week from the US. Doc will be back from Sydney still. Oh, we'll. Be back in harness, in saddle. We will be back into it very, very soon. That wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget, you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating, give us some stars, let everyone know how dashing, handsome, funny, smart, thoughtful,
2: humorous we are. Scott is smart. No, you're intelligent. I'm just here. Yeah, but I'm Number. saying the next time we're going to hear Scott Oh, you, like, you think? Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure, mate. I'm I think sure. they just did. They're you know, just playing with us. <laughs> I think maybe they're trying to set us against <laughs> each other.
1: You're not going to break us up, you lot. That's enough. All right. Uh, don't forget, you can get a dose of Foolish just straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money Mailbag Edition. We'll be back next week with our usual programming and another dose
0: of Foolish Insight. Full Fool on. Full on.